This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon.com and by University of California Press, which publishes loads of titles of interest to Dig listeners like you. One that you might find interesting is How All Politics Became Reproductive Politics, From Welfare Reform to Foreclosure to Trump by Laura Briggs. Today, all politics are reproductive politics, argues feminist critic Laura Briggs, from longer work hours to the election of Donald Trump. Households are where we face our economic realities, as social safety nets get cut and wages decline. Briggs outlines how politicians' racist accounts of reproduction, stories of black welfare queens and Latina breeding machines, laid the groundwork for government and business disinvestment in families. With decreasing wages, rising McJobs, and no resources for family care, our households have grown ever more precarious. This crisis, argues Briggs, fuels all others, from immigration to gay marriage and anti-feminism to the rise of the Tea Party. How all politics became reproductive politics— from Welfare Reform to Foreclosure to Trump, by Laura Briggs. Out now, from University of California Press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Exciting, terrifying times. Trump has threatened to destroy North Korea, and Hillary Clinton is on a book tour. My guest today is Eve Pizer, a writer and comedian living in New York City. She covers politics for Vice, and we're going to talk about it all. Before we get started, we are on track to meet our goal of 700 supporters on Patreon.com by year's end. But you guessed it. We can only do so with your support. So if you're a regular listener who hasn't done so yet, hit pause and go to patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Every level of support is welcome. But if you donate more, we have books to send you. And if you've already donated... Thank you very much. Eve Pizer, welcome to The Dig. Thanks so much for having me. Donald Trump went to the UN this week and threatened to destroy North Korea. This is, for me, what makes it really hard to gloat over Republican repeated Republican legislative failures, is that he really could get millions of people killed. What did you make of, of, of his UN appearance? It was terrifying and somehow unsurprising. I, I sort of hate how numb I am to the news at this point, where it's like, oh, of course Trump threatened to blow North Korea off the map. It's horrible, and the consequences are so terrifying that I, like, have a difficult time letting my mind even go there, you know? Yeah. Um, like, how do you, as a journalist, not let the numbness 
I guess, dull your critical analytical edge so much that you try to like understand what's what horrible things he actually might do and what is just um, this sort of ongoing, never-ending reality TV show, a soap opera drama taking place in the White House. Yeah, I, I don't know. I sort of try to... I, I feel like the more reporting I do, the more connected I feel to my work and the more real it feels. So I like get this feeling when I've just stared at the internet for too long every day reading what everybody thinks is going to happen, where it's like, okay, I just need to close the computer and like go outside and actually talk to people. Um, I have like a little voice in my head that's my my friend Olivia Newsy, who's the uh, Washington correspondent for New York Mag. Always, whenever we're talking about other people's journalistic failures, she always says, "Do some reporting." And now I just have that that in my head over and over again, where it's like, if you feel, no matter what you're feeling or how scared you're feeling, if you go out and talk to people and just like focus on whatever story you're working on, that feels far more valuable than just being a pundit all the time. Yeah. And I, I think that's uh, really smart. And, and the, that the corollary for news consumers, for people who are reading or listening to news rather than writing or uh, talking it, is to um, try to reduce Twitter and hot take intake and um, read more in-depth, long-form reporting and even books. Yeah. I certainly do not read enough books. The like the most recent book I read was What Happened, and that was for work. And I don't I didn't consider that a necessarily enlightening experience. <laughs> well, I <laughs> I did want to talk to you about that. You wrote a review of What Happened, um, Hillary Clinton's new book, and I'm not going to read it, and I'm guessing most of my listeners won't either. Um, we've all seen the photograph of the page about her talking about Bernie promising ponies. Um, oh, my God. Yeah. And that making Trump president. What overall um, should people who aren't going to read the book know about the book since you've read it? The book doesn't really give you much new information, but it's a pretty good portrait of Hillary Clinton's lack of self-awareness and points. It, it tells you what happened in that it really illuminates her failures as a candidate, but I, it, that's not intentional on her part. She says a lot in the book, like, oh, I take responsibility, but here are all these other things that contributed to it. And she doesn't really talk about her role in, in losing the election was. But I think that, if anything, it's an argument for the fact that the Democrats have to move away from the, the Clinton-Obama wing of the party if they're ever going to win again, because she can't see, like when she talks about her Wall Street speeches, she doesn't think that taking the money was wrong. She just thinks it was bad optics, retrospectively. And she can't really comprehend why people might have a problem with that. <laughs> and she's sort of like, I asked Bernie to name one vote that I changed because of the donations that I'd accepted. And he couldn't do it. And for her, that's this gotcha moment. And she's 
perplexed as to why that didn't convince people that it was okay that she took money from Wall Street and other industries. And she doesn't get that. After the book was released, Ezra Klein did an interview with her where she brought that up again and said, you know, Obama also took a lot of money and he still was somehow she believes he was hard on the bankers and Wall Street during the financial crisis. And Ezra Klein pushed back on her and she just she didn't really have anything to say about it. She's she's really it. Her book illuminates her. Her like real core belief in like centrism and um, bipartisan compromise. And she doesn't understand the political benefits of being idealistic when it comes to her telling the world what type of policies she would like to institute because she doesn't really want anything to radically change. And when you speak to voters and tell them like, oh, I'm going to have these policies that will make things slightly better. It's not particularly compelling. And she she's not interested in anything revolutionary. And I think that a lot of the criticisms of her campaign was like the poor messaging. And the whole time she talks about all the policies and she says, you know, I was so policy focused and nobody else was, but she did a horrible job of expressing her policy ideas to the world. And she didn't express any ideals along with them. She just, the way she saw it, oh, well, here are realistic things and Bernie Sanders isn't realistic. But it sort of neglects the idea that like politicians define what's realistic and what's not. And that even if one's putting forward pragmatic proposals, like uh, Bernie Sanders' proposals weren't to create a utopia tomorrow. They're definitely radical in comparison to Clinton. But what he did that Clinton not only failed to do, but fails to understand why it's important to do is to paint a utopian horizon for people of of what sort of world we're ideally working yeah. towards. Pe- that how do you expect people to engage with politics without having a, a, a vision of what what the point of it all is? I wasn't surprised that she spent a decent amount of the book blaming Bernie Sanders, but I was certainly disappointed. I was hoping to like the book. I I wasn't expecting to, but I'm like many leftists on the internet and beyond, I'm very hard on Hillary Clinton. And I was hoping that the book could be redemptive in some way or show like um, that she has some awareness of why she did not win. And it was, she was not able to do that at all. Um, But the book was so long that sort of like, (laughs) and and extremely repetitive. And there was like a lot of inanity. She lists, I guess, in order to make herself seem relatable, she frequently name drops like lots of foods that she likes and things like that. But by the end of the book, I was just like so ready for it to be done that I was like, okay, fine, fine. That's what happened. Okay, just leave me alone now. (laughs) Does she grapple at all? all with what complicity the political establishment from both major parties 
um, might have for making Donald Trump seem like a reasonable option to a disturbingly large number of Americans? No. She definitely talks about the Republican Party's role in it and um, their them becoming more extremist over the past 10 or so years. But she does not take responsibility from the Democrat side. She does say, like, you know, maybe like she talks about how she was she believes in kindness and compassion and it wasn't the election for her to run in. (laughs) But she doesn't talk. I mean, she doesn't even talk about her own campaign as as we saw in the emails. She doesn't talk about her own campaign sort of pushing for Trump because they thought they could beat him. She really does an incredible job of evading every single criticism that's made against her instead of engaging with it. Which it, the book just felt like a pointless exercise. I like we already know what she thinks. And just looping back to that campaign finance issue about the, the Bernie not being able to, you know, point to a specific policy she, she changed. Someone made this point in an article or on Twitter somewhere in the last week. I don't remember who, but just how crazy it is that she doesn't seem to realize that that fundamentally undermines the the basic Democratic Party kind of official argument against Citizens United. Yeah, um, that that the problem isn't this like vote by vote quid pro quo, though, who knows, it might end up being just that with 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 Trump. Um, but but that the, the the general problem is that systematically the reliance on corporate money perverts the party's and politics as a whole is like purpose and and uh, and function. She just sees it in such a different way that like I feel like that argument would wash right off her. She sees it as a political necessity. And I don't think that she in this environment is 100 percent wrong. Alex Perrine recently or a couple months ago, he wrote a really good article um, on Splinter, which that had something like the headline. Maybe we need that Clinton dark money pack now. Because the right is much better funded than the left. But I think that that's like a complicated discussion that you have to engage in. And you can't just say, "Okay, I'm taking corporate money. Um, Please don't get mad at me. And then be surprised when people are suspicious of her for doing so. And I think that she, she also, in the book, she frequently like compares what she did to what Obama did in terms of taking corporate money or all these things where like there are all these parallels and she's like, well, why didn't people get mad at Obama for this? And she blames sexism, but what she neglects is that firstly, Obama didn't have a reputation of being untrustworthy when he was running for president. Like she did. People don't trust the Clintons. They see them as like a political dynasty. That's that has a lot of money and corporate interests. And Obama didn't have that reputation. And also, whenever she sort of uses these arguments saying, oh, well, these men did all these things and they didn't get in trouble. It's like, well, they weren't running for president when you were. And also, it doesn't mean that what they did was right. It's yeah, I'm I'm so sorry that you got shit for this thing that male politicians do all the time and didn't get shit for. But the fact is, none of it is moral. That's not an argument for what you're doing. Yeah, the conclusion is that those guys should have gotten shit as well. Not that Clinton shouldn't get shit for it. And 
yeah, I think most people on the left would definitely agree that because of Obama's charisma, he gets away with a lot of shit that he shouldn't. Um, but that doesn't mean that Clinton should get away with it, too. I mean, that's not the, the way the logic should flow. Yeah, exactly. Um, some other low points um, that you noted in your review of the book that I wanted to go over. Um, one that I thought was really kind of shocking was her response to the Women's March um, was oh, to yeah. wonder where everyone was at that march when she was running for president. That's just utterly a staggering thing for her to write and to, to think at the time. Yeah, it well, it doesn't make sense because I would, you know, she, as she mentions in the book many times, she won the popular vote. And the people who are marching in the Women's March were people who voted for her, first of all. First of all, but also that that response is just like the perfect illustration of why people don't like her or why people thought that she was she felt entitled to the presidency because she acted like she was. She acted like she was going to win throughout the whole election. And it's like, yeah, she's entitled to these feelings of solidarity and she can't she's. She later talks about how pe- non-voters have like apologized to her for not voting, and she says she doesn't like forgive them or whatever. But it's like it's her job to convince people to vote for her, and not being Donald Trump was not enough. She didn't she didn't compel people to vote for her, and that's on her. And not only does she still have that, I mean, she has this sense of entitlement and doesn't realize that it was voters' very clear perception that she had that sense of entitlement, that my turn um, kind of feeling that turned so many off so much. Yeah. And like in her book, she also just like rewrites American history. She writes, before 2016, (laughs) we never elected a president who flagrantly refused to abide by the basic standards of democracy and decency. And yeah. her, yeah. Like, oh my God, you were like, read, around read a book. during Nixon. <laughs> like, I watched like the six-part PBS documentary and I know that. And I'm what, a 23-year-old shitbag. You were around. Like, you should know better. And like the whole, like sanitizing even someone so, with like a Ken Burns like level knowledge, like approach to American history should, you know, be able to call bullshit on that. Yeah. But like the, the way she sanitizes American history and then also her husband's time in office and what he was able to achieve or whatnot just is, is really off putting. I think that when a lot when people are talking about why Trump was successful or why Bernie was successful, I think that they both did did a good job of sort of acknowledging people's pain and suffering that happens because of inadequate government. And by sanitizing American history and making a lot of political issues about her specifically, instead of about how, like what you're going to do for the people is not makes, it's just not compelling. It makes it's, it's off-putting. I think either on, on on Twitter or in the review yourself, you wrote something about how you didn't want to sort of like get back into relitigating the 
Democratic primary. And people tend to preface uh, um, Bernie Hillary reappraisals at this point with with that caveat. Um, But I don't know. I kind of feel like and maybe it's just like a sick pleasure of mine, but I kind of feel like it's healthy and necessary to keep relitigating it um, at least until the next primary gets um, settled, because until the lessons get get learned, um, um, I think it's it's very clear from the the DNC race and and things like that that the Democratic Party um, seems seems pretty resistant to learning those lessons. There was like a Times article recently just about all of the various twenty twenty potential aspirants who are already making the 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 sort of big fundraiser rounds the Hamptons and all of it. So it seems it, it seems like they still don't get it, and I and I and I don't know how we're going to make a fight to make them get it or to figure out something else without relitigating the primary. Yeah. What do you, what do you think? <laughs> I mean, I don't I don't like relitigating the primary and that like the more I talk to hardcore supporters of any politician, the more you just understand that it is largely not about the politics and it's about a cult of personality and I feel like I really do want to engage in the the ideological and political battle between Bernie and Hillary because I think it's important for the future of the Democratic Party. But like it's it feels so difficult to talk to talk about without people saying, well, you just hate Hillary Clinton and you're you know, it just like goes back to like these inane primary arguments or people like hardcore Hillary supporters, you know, just spewing their actual bullshit about Bernie in terms of like his political beliefs and his history and like whether he's sexist or whatnot. I'm like, I'm so done with these arguments about the 2016 primary that are clearly not about politics and that are instead about like your favorite celebrity or like the the tribe you decided to be in. Like if we're going to talk about it, I'll like I can tell you why I like Bernie. Like I think he is a compelling politician, but like I like I voted for him in the primary because I I liked his policies better than Hillary's. And that's like like people actually like aren't interested in talking about the political differences. They're far more interested in talking about the personality differences. Moving on to some uh stuff that you're working on right now speaking of of controversial personalities from the 2016 mm-hmm. election um you hung out with Jill Stein i assume up in massachusetts yeah i've actually i've now gone twice to spend a day with jill and i'm working on a profile of her and sort of understanding who she is and why she did what she did considering i see so much like so many people like really hate Jill Stein, especially liberals and Democrats and whatnot. And they feel that she shouldn't have even run and they blame her. Hillary blames Jill in the book. And Jill, let me tell you, Jill was pleased to hear that. (laughs) Um, But, you know, Jill obviously has some problematic beliefs and ways of thinking about the world But I find the argument that, oh, she shouldn't have won 
to be absolute, or she shouldn't have run, sorry, to be absolute bullshit because it's a democracy. That's the whole point. You can fucking run. Yeah, you can't tell people not to run. (laughs) It's it's just not okay. It's It's just like, it's not even a conversation I'm interested in having. It's, it's, it also like assumes that Stein voters would have gone for Hillary, which like just isn't true. Yeah, there's this there's this basic incoherence and contradiction in the mainstream, the way mainstream liberals relate to the left, where they both say um, you can't run a third party candidate um, or else you're spoiling the election. And then when Bernie, you know, really parts from the Nader uh, experience of of 2000 mm-hmm. and runs within the party, they're basically like, no, you can't run within the party either. Um, and yeah. no, you can't even have uh, Keith Ellison be DNC chair. And so it's sort of a, a, a fucked up bind that uh, that's ultimately kind of unsurprising, I guess. But they're like, no, actually, we just want you to vote for us, but shut up. Exactly. And it's, you know, I think that the real reason Trump won is because of um, because we don't have automatic voter registration and it's very hard to register to vote in many places and Republicans are trying to make it as difficult as possible. So understanding that it just seems like why focus your energy on blaming like it's like you really got to work on messaging if to get the few people who are voting to go for you and ignoring the fact that a lot of people want better government social services and don't just want to vote for the party that is less insane than the Republicans. You have to take that into consideration if you want to win. And Hillary Clinton and a section of the Democratic Party seems so unwilling to do that, that it's like you're never going to get anywhere. And then with like Jill Stein, she's not particularly influential, but like instead of dismissing her and the Greens, it, it would be valuable for the more progressive party of the two major parties to sort of try to understand the appeal. And uh, I, I really... I really like writing profiles of people and doing interviews to like under, especially with people who are as controversial as Jill Stein to sort of like understand the full picture. It's like, why is she doing what she is doing? Um, And like Jill is somebody who has deep seated mistrust for the two party system and wants to, wants to change it. She doesn't think we live in a true democracy and she's not wrong, but most liberals would be extremely quick to dismiss those ideas because uh, they don't jive with their agenda and they think Jill Stein's a kook, but so is everyone. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, like I interviewed lots of kooks in politics. <laughs> in, back in April, I interviewed Dana Rohrbacher, a congressman oh <laughs> um, uh, California Republican who's like a Putin, a Putinist openly. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. in the nineties, Putin beat him in an arm wrestling match at a bar in D.C. And Dana is just like, like 
I would recommend everybody Googling an article with the headline, Dana Rohrabacher is dirty, because one, that's a great headline. And two, it's about like an apartment an apartment he leased that he like totally trashed in like this really psychotic way. But it's like, yeah, he's a fucking kook and he's a congressman. Look at Trump. He's a kook. He's president. Dismissing Jill as a kook is not particularly useful or like whatever. Yeah, she's silly. I can't wait to share all my Jill anecdotes with the world. But like she has, she doesn't do what she does for attention or for like narcissistic reasons any more than the next politician. She believes in her cause and she makes, for, for all the stupid and silly points she makes, she does make salient ones. But I like understand her as like, um, a mom working at working at like the local organic food co-op when we talk i'm like <laughs> <laughs> like I just, she's, she's she's very maternal um i'm not I, i'm not angry with her to begin with so maybe i'm coming at it from a different perspective i also like view jill stein as mostly harmless which i think is fair right definitely fair. I think it's like a total misunderstanding of where those votes would go. Like if Jill Stein didn't run, someone else would run to take those votes if the Democratic candidate is not appealing to X number of people. It's just like a structural fact that we live in this. um, Like people are like, there's this irony at play where people are like, you know, uh, hey, two party people, I mean, third party people, you need to be more pragmatic. We live in a two party system. Yeah, that's sad. But what they don't get is that a feature of this two party system is that which is a horrible, undemocratic system is that it structurally creates these third parties that can't win. That's like part of the two party system. Exactly. And I don't I, I agree with the idea that we would have a more democratic country if we had a multi-party system and i think it, that's a it would be hard to argue otherwise right we're yeah i mean like the democrats are just like not it i never happily i mean aside from in 2012 when i voted for obama and was you know didn't know shit I, i've like <laughs> never been excited to cast my vote for a Democrat aside from Bernie Sanders, who's, you know, as as Clinton loves to point out, he is not a real Democrat. He is an independent. Having a multi-party system where you could perhaps be excited about the person you're voting for or the person you're voting for actually shares similar ideology to you. That's what that's what would make it more democratic. And I don't know if you've seen this in your reporting for this profile. But um, in my experience, and when I was uh, 17 years old in 2000, I was very involved as a young volunteer on the Nader campaign, that one thing people miss about um, people in, in the Green Party and engaged in third party politics is that by and large, these are people who actually took what they were told in civics class in elementary school and in, in high school, 
like really seriously that America is supposed to be this democracy where you vote for who you believe in and the government, you know, represents the result of that vote. Like it's almost like sincere and, you know, maybe naive, but very sincere. And then when they see like the two party corporate duopoly that we actually have, they're furious and they and they vote their conscience. I totally agree with that. I I, I understand the impulse to un, to think that Jill Stein has some like insidious agenda she's not sharing with us, especially due to her reluctance to really, you know, say the Russian government interfered with the 2016 election and criticize Putin and things like that. But I I think that her objectives ultimately come from this idea that we need a better democracy, a real democracy, and that we will die if the two-party system continues. One last thing I wanted to talk to you about. Um, Is it true that you saw Joe Scarborough play rock music last night? I sure did. I'm actually (laughs) writing a piece about it for Noisy, um, Vice's music website. But and and I interviewed him after the show. And people often ask me, like, why would you ever do that? But (laughs) you know, the real question is, why would you not ever do that? Right. I mean. But basically, I think that a very small-brained response to Joe Scarborough's music, which, by the way, listen to before you make a judgment. I know that his TV persona is is like, I, I don't agree with his politics, and I've never really watched his show. So I, I understand the temptation to prejudge his music by who he is outside of music. But his music is I mean, it's undeniably catchy. It's fun. It. <laughs> I recently took a road trip with my friend Olivia, who profiled him and Mika for New York Mag, and we would listen to it like on the open roads of Wyoming. And it's like perfect for that. It's like I'm thinking like somewhere in like the Jimmy Buffett to Tom Petty like uh, spectrum. You know, like, uh, I haven't listened to it. I'm just trying to. I, it's hard to describe. I would just recommend listening to Mystified, his single off his first EP. Well, um, thank you very much for joining me and um, for keeping it cosmic. Oh, always. Thanks so much for having me. Eve Pizer is a writer and comedian living in New York City who covers politics for Vice. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once informed Ingalls by Carrier Pigeon, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting two new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our postmaster general is Christian Tyler. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. And on iTunes, please leave us a review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. 
as does making propaganda on our behalf. And please find us on patreon.com and make a monthly contribution. We need those to keep this thing going. Hi, Dan. Uh, this is Strictoso Basildua. Um, I'm just a listener here. I um, haven't really called in before, but I just wanted to call in and just say thank you for the show. I'm out here in Nampa, Idaho, um, Boise, Idaho. I go to Boise State. So for me, this is really kind of the way that I get my news. And it's a really cool way for me to um, see kind of um, just what's going on with the world. Because out here, it's a little bit, um, I would say, compartmentalized with things that I can uh, have access to. So I just appreciate the, um, the dig because it's kind of expanded my horizons. Uh, incrementally. So thank you very, very much. Hi, uh, my name is Onlin Wang. Uh, I am not calling with a question or a message for the guest. I was just calling just to say that the, the show is fantastic. Um, and, you know, please keep up the good work. Yeah, that's it. Have a good one.